Well, good evening, church. Welcome to our Sunday night study time. I wish we could be together, but I'm here in this uh, empty sanctuary. But God's word is still true. And I think we're studying an important subject, soul food, the things you need to know about your Bible. We're looking at how we got it, and then we're going to study how to read it. There's a question I want to look at tonight, uh, and it's the title of the teaching. Is there propositional revelation outside the canon of Scripture? We know there's revelation outside the canon of Scripture because Paul writes about God's revelation in nature, his, his power, his might. We know there's revelation of God in the created world around us. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about propositional, written statements, a record. Is there propositional revelation outside the canon of Scripture? I have a verse I want to look at from the book of Jude. Verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary. So he says there's situations arise and So what we're studying tonight isn't an unnecessary truth. It might not be a typical truth, but it's a necessary truth. I found it necessary to write, appealing to you, this is to the church, to to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all delivered to the saints. So, establishing the the canon, the rule, that's what that means, of Scripture, obviously it involves two tasks. They're related, but they're not quite the same. We need to know which books. You've got 27 letters, books in the New Testament, 39 in the Old Testament. So we need to know which books to include. And that's where we started our study. We began with the 24 books of the Hebrew scriptures, which correspond exactly with the 39 books you have in your Old Testament. They just lump different books together under one title. So they end up with 24 books, but it's exactly the same content-wise as the 39 you have. But we include more than that. We include 27 books of the New Testament. Jews don't. And we took our whole last week to show why those books are necessary. Jesus, when he looked at the Old Testament, the same Old Testament you have, he said to his disciples, Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures. That would be their Old Testament scriptures, the same ones you have. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And he said Abraham longed to see his day. And so the first disciples, all of whom were devout Jews, basically all of them were devout Jews, raised in the Hebrew scriptures, they realized, well, if we're going to take these scriptures of ours seriously, they point to Jesus. Jesus appointed apostles then to bear testimony to his life and work, and these we call the New Testament. What should they do? What should they believe? What did they need to know? I mean, these apostles wouldn't live forever. How would future generations know with certainty what Jesus said and what Jesus did? So 
So some guidelines had to be preserved to guide and protect this new church from myth, different religious beliefs, superstition, error. And you begin to see the forming of the canon of Scripture, and it involved two tasks. What is to be included, and then, of equal importance, what needs to be excluded? How do we limit the possible candidates for biblical truth? What are the criteria for saying, no, these might be fine documents, but they aren't biblical truth. We don't include the 13 books of the Apocrypha that our Roman Catholic friends include. Let's face it. I mean, we live in a world where alleged sacred texts abound. Most religions have at least one. We don't accept those as valid revelations from God. We don't just merge them all together and, and say, look, let's just ignore the differences. Let's lump them all together. So what boundaries on truth claims should be set? Why do we say this book for propositional revelation from God and nothing else? That's the subject of tonight's teaching. Point number one. As surely as the apostles were specifically enabled by the Holy Spirit for the composition of the New Testament, they were also irreplaceable once their task was completed. We already saw how Jesus promised his spirit, his revealing spirit in, a, in, in special ways to establish the production of reliable New Testament documents. The promise is generous and it's assured. We read it in John 14, 24 to 26. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. God's words. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. He knows he's not going to be with them for long. 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So that's really important. I, they apply, of course, to all believers, but in a very special way to those first apostles. The Holy Spirit would make certain that years later, the apostles wrote down exactly what Jesus, by his spirit, wanted them to remember and record. But this kind of authoritative revelation wouldn't continue in that way indefinitely. Judas, okay, he was replaced at his untimely death. You can read about that in Acts chapter 1, 15 to 26. I won't take time to read the whole text, but when you come to the end of it, Judas is replaced. Matthias is his replacement. They cast lots. The lot fell on Matthias. That's Acts 1, 26. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. All right. That's a fascinating text. Why does the church assume that it must replace Judas? Have you ever wondered about that? There are still 11 apostles. And it gets this injunction prophetically 
from the Psalms in their Jewish scriptures. So in other words, they don't see what they're doing as a departure from their Old Testament scriptures. They see what they're doing in replacing Judas with Matthias. They see it as being inspired in their Hebrew scriptures. But here's the thing. There's no compulsion to do this at the death of any apostle from this time on. So Judas has to be replaced. The other apostles all died. Nobody even thought to replace them. Why? Why must they replace Judas, a traitor of his apostolic office, and not replace, say, John the Beloved, or the Apostle Peter, or James, the brother of our Lord, or even Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles. This is the only time the church bothered to replace any apostle at his death. Only there. Why? The reason is really important. The first dying apostle is replaced because, as of yet, there is no recorded New Testament letter or document. So the first dying apostle is replaced because the assignment of the apostles still lies in the future and is still incomplete. The apostles must complete the process described by Jesus where he said his Holy Spirit would come, enable them to remember and record a New Testament record. Once that record was completed and the apostles died off one by one, there was no one else who would bear revealed truth for the whole church in that sense. So the apostles were not replaced because the work they did was simply irreplaceable and non-repeatable. Point number two. The Apostle Paul received his unusual apostolic calling on the road to Damascus and specifically says he was the last one. I get that in 1 Corinthians 15, 7 to 9. Then he, the he is Jesus, his resur post-resurrection appearances. He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So Jesus didn't go on and on calling apostles to form the New Testament canon. Paul says specifically, he was the last one. Their work formed a finished revelation for the church. That's our opening text, Jude 1.3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing you to contend, contend for the faith that was once for all, once for all. It was done once and it was done for everybody, everybody that would ever live. Once for all delivered to the saints. Those are the important words. Once for all delivered. So, so this wasn't updated or added to year by year or century by century. The church always goes back to what was once for all delivered. 
So th- th- there are no additions. Unlike your computer or your smartphone, there are no updates. And the fact that we're told to, listen, the fact that we're told to contend for this truth shows that people will want to add and update what was once delivered. They're going to say it needs to be modified. It's outdated. It's irrelevant to the culture. It doesn't fit with the thinking of the day. And this writer says, you contend against that, church. Fight against that. Don't let what was once for all delivered slip away. Point number three. Peter saw Paul's writings as an expansion of what already existed in the original Hebrew canon of the scriptures. I get that. These are pretty familiar words. In 2 Peter 3, 14 to 16. Peter writes and says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, you got a new heaven and a new earth coming, Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Just as our brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable, twist to their destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter's saying, there's a body of truth already known by his readers. They will already know what he's talking about when he talks about the scriptures in verse 16. I mean, the church is already in agreement over this canon of truth. Those 24 books of the Jewish scriptures are 39, exactly the same. And then he does something else. He says something quite striking. He includes Paul's writings with those Jewish scriptures. That's why he says people twist Paul's writings like they do the other scriptures. So Paul has the endorsement of the original apostles in a way that no self-appointed apostle has. So consider how huge this is. I mean, let your mind kind of grab hold of what we're observing. These devout Jewish disciples, these passionate followers of the Old Testament Hebrew canon of the scriptures, they're doing something unheard of up to this point. The canon is expanding. They're including Paul just as Jesus promised would happen when his Holy Spirit came and reminded the apostles of these truths. Point four. We're almost done. The writings of the apostles and prophets together form the foundation of the church's life, doctrine, and ministry. I get that in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself 
being the cornerstone. This does not contradict anything Paul says in in chapter 4 of Ephesians, these gifts of apostles given to the church. But this verse tells us what the gift was for and how the gift functioned. The church is 20, 220, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the whole church, says Paul, the whole church rests down on only one foundation. It's not a repeatable foundation. Other things get built on top of the foundation, but the foundation is established. It's finished. So all ministries, all teaching, all discipline, all worship, it all rests down on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Notice the order. You'd think it would say prophets and apostles, Old Testament, new, but it doesn't. Apostles and prophets, the the old is interpreted by the new. That's just a solid principle taught throughout the scriptures. Now, you can see how this theology worked itself out in Paul's everyday ministry. This wasn't just theory. This isn't just cold academic stuff to Paul. All sorts of different things were happening in the church, even in the church of Paul's time. And we have some examples. Look at this whole issue of of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 14, 37 to 40. Paul writes, and he's he's trying to uh, straighten out and correct some disorder. He certainly doesn't forbid. That's what people would normally do. Oh, it's so risky. Things go crazy. Let's not have any of it. That's nonsense. If gifts aren't being used properly, then teach and use them properly. No one would say, for example, you know, there's, there's so much false teaching in the church. We should just do away with the gift of teaching. Well, no. The answer to false teaching is true teaching. The answer to any abuse of spiritual gift isn't the removal of the gift. It's the correction of the gift. But it's how Paul does it that's so significant here relating to the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So having that said, 1 Corinthians 14, 37 to 40. If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, He should acknowledge that the things I am writing you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize that, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So, okay, notice, as I said, Paul doesn't take the path that many would take. He doesn't deny that there are prophetic words for the church or gifts given to the church by the Holy Spirit. But what he does do is he honors the foundation. He actually regulates other prophetic utterances. People who are standing up saying, here's what the Lord showed me. And Paul regulates, he regulates those utterances by his apostolic office. He measures their authenticity by the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So are there still revelations? Well, yes and no. There are still prophetic words given to the church. And there are still apostles. I think in that sense of an apostolic calling to new people groups and unreached lands, but there is no longer any revelation given that is universally binding for the doctrine and practice of the church. There is no apostle who stands in authority over you 
and the content of your Christian faith. There are apostles. There are apostles who have spiritual authority over my walk with Jesus. They're all dead. They live in the pages of the New Testament. The apostles in the pages of the New Testament have binding teaching authority over all the church everywhere until Jesus comes back. Though they're dead, we have propositional revelation. They regulate our doctrine and they exclude all that is contrary. Yes, God still speaks to people. Yes, we need to know the voice of the good shepherd. And one of the ways we know it is his words abide in us, John 15. By his spirit, through the inspired pages of the New Testament, if any revelation does any kind of an end run around the scriptures, I don't buy it and you shouldn't buy it either. Our faith while living and vital, is a once-for-all delivered. It's already been delivered faith. And it's the only message, it's the only message, this is why it matters, it's the only message that has power to reach the lost and the only message that has power to sanctify the believer. Sanctify them through your word. It's truth. Let's pray. We treasure your word. It means so much to us to have reliable, knowable, propositional truth that excludes all false doctrines, all false books, all false revelations. We have a faith once for all delivered. It's living, but it's once for all delivered. Bless Cedarview Community Church. And let these words live and abide in all of our hearts, even while we can't gather. Let these words unite our hearts in a precious love for truth and a love for Jesus and a love for one another. I ask it in your name. Thank you because you hear us. Separated like this, you hear us when together we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. Love each one of you. Join us for our prayer time.